Welcome to Behave Intelligently, an uncensored exploration of behavior in the workplace, life, and the larger world. Behave Intelligently is co-hosted by fellow behavioral enthusiasts, Jay Johnson and Mark Garrison, and produced by the amazingly talented team at Coeus Creative Group. Thank you for joining this week's edition, where we're going to talk about board-level decision-making. So Mark, you and I have served on a number of different boards throughout our career uh, in politics or elected office, as well as nonprofit organizations and a whole host of other places. And I think one of the most interesting aspects of behavior is how decisions are made within the structures of those boards of directors. So in, in sort of service to that decision-making concept, what are some of the things that kind of stand out to you from your experience in working with boards of directors? You know, I, I think the, the one thing that really pops is the emotional aspect of decision-making. Thinking back to some of the boards that I've been on, um, some of the members, it was strictly an emotionally driven decision instead of um, long-term uh, future forward thinking, or um, in some cases, the best decision for for the organization. Um, you know, and I say that because I've served on uh, school uh, school boards of education. I've served on homeowners associations, so uh, boards that are very very personal to people. I've served on different uh, cause organizations. Um, that are also, again, very personal. And so that emotion can also be a huge driver in people. And I think they operate to some extent with blinders on. I've also served in, in, on boards that are very process focused. And, you know, when they go through that decision-making uh, process, it's very slow, methodical. And some of those boards were very boring, I'll be honest. Sure. Well, and it's interesting that you bring, you know, emotion into the decision-making question because there's those schools of thought where, you know, there's the schools of thought where you have Simon Sinek who talks about every, you know, every purchase behavior, everything else like that is an emotional decision or emotion-based decision. Then you also have some, you know, old school economists that talk about uh, rationality and our ability to strictly, you know, make decisions as they are focused on data and systems and process and logic, et cetera. And the reality is, is that those two systems really are interactive in almost every single decision that we make, you know, from uh, the decisions of large scale homeowners, uh, homeowners association, where it's like, uh, we're making a decision of whether to assess a tax. Well, you know, that can be very emotional. It can also be very logical. And I think that that interplay between those two concepts is something that's, you know, really important in the decision-making world. I kind of think about some of the board decisions or some of the different ways that I've been on boards. And, and I agree with you, there's always a lot of emotion. And from my experience, it often seems like some of the board members might be, uh, they, they almost tie their decisions to like their personality or to their own personal situation, right? Like if my decision or if my decision is on the majority or it goes through, I win and that validates me as a human being. 
if my decision or my you know direction is on the minority and I lose, well, that's that's me personally losing, not just a decision or not just an action or a policy or anything else. Have you experienced sort of that dichotomy? Oh yeah, like people are they're branded that way for the rest of their life. Um, you know, they they feel that that decision they they carry with them everywhere, and I personally don't understand that. I've been on the side of votes, even within our own company, where it was everyone against Mark on an issue. <laughs> I didn't take that personally, and I don't carry that with me as I was defeated, and you guys hate me for you know voting against this. Um, that was a decision, and Jay, you and I have disagreed on topics several times, but we can still be friends. We can still we can have a very heated discussion and still go grab a, a beverage after work. You know, and I think that's important because when we get into those bowl, board roles or those positions, oftentimes, you know, it does. It, it just naturally ends up feeling somewhat level personal. Now, the interesting thing, you know, my, my personality, my behavioral preference is fire. I'm very competitive. I want to win. I want to do this. But for me, it's also in that competition space, when we lost a hockey game, we didn't yell at the refs. We didn't say how we were, you know, cheated out of the game or anything else like that. Our job was to go and shake the winner's hand and say, hey, congratulations, we'll get you next time. You know, because there's not like a single instance of any kind of competition or whatever where that was the decisive moment of the game being won or lost. And if you think that that is the case, even if it's the buzzer beater at the last 10 seconds, well, you had an entire game to get to that last 10 seconds. So if you really think about it, there's no one play that makes or breaks a game. But uh, so when we think about boards or decisions, I'm kind of of the same mind. If I'm not on the right side, it will be one of those things where it's like, hey, good game, lost that fight. All right, let's move forward. That's the direction. Where do you think Robert's rules or bylaws or meeting kind of concepts, you know, those, those high level pieces play into that? And I've, I've got a story I want to share on it, but I want to hear your perspective on it first. Well, you're talking about a few of those subjects that I really love. Like I love good old Bob's rules and using them in a meeting. Um, I love bylaws and policies and procedures. Um, it's one of the areas that I tend to do a lot of training on when it comes to effective meetings and things like that. But those give us the guidelines and structure to make sure that we are following the will of the organization, but also being fair that everyone's voice is heard throughout the process and that the loudest voice doesn't just get to carry it. And, you know, that's that's really important for uh, for me, because I am often not the loudest voice in the room. I am not the one that tends to talk the most. No, that's me. Right? <laughs> I am one that will sit there and listen. I will hear what people are saying. I will process it. And that's probably that strong air in me is I want to hear what everyone's saying and see if I can come up with that creative solution. And, you know, if I lose if I'm on the losing side of that vote, it's not the end of the world for me. My air kicks in and goes, all right, we're going to find a creative way to make this win the next time. But that's what those rules and those processes, I think, are really there for. 
It's not to be a negative, but I view it more as a positive. But I know there's folks who don't like rules and procedures that think it's the worst thing ever. So I am not a huge rules person, but I actually, I 100% love Robert's Rules of Order. And I'm going to tell you the story. I was working with a nonprofit organization and they were having a lot of struggles with their board of directors. I mean, there was, uh, the meetings were running over two, three hours. There was people that were starting to get to the point of, you know, losing professionalism where it was no longer about the issue or anything else. It was about each other and so on and so forth. And I sat down and I had a conversation. I got to observe this, sat down, had a conversation uh, with the board chairperson and was like, I think that there's some ways that you could probably utilize Robert's rules in order to have more effective decisions, to have some of these discussions, but then to also limit out some of the emotion that's coming through uh, when these tense issues are being brought to the table. And it was less than an hour of sort of reshaping the way that they looked at their meetings or the way that they were making their decisions that all of a sudden it, it just clicked. And it was something, it was things as simple as what of these issues on your agenda are actual decision-based action items? What, what do you have to make a decision yes or no on? Which ones are just reports? Which ones are there for discussion that should not be on your agenda and should be pushed to a committee for discussion within that committee before it comes back to your board of directors to make a decision on a direction? And it was just like, we can do that yeah, you can do that. Um, you know, and it was just, it was really interesting to me because I think a lot of people serve on these boards of directors where they lament how difficult these decisions are made or how difficult these arguments and discussions, but it doesn't have to be that way. I think that there are a lot of really cool tools out there like Robert's Rules, as well as other things that can help us navigate some of that space. I mean, simple things such as if you are starting a discussion following the rules of reciprocity that's defined where each person has the opportunity to speak before somebody else gets the opportunity to speak a second time or limiting the time frame for which people can make their arguments or anything else kind of pushes us more towards that logic side or pushes you can still make emotional pleas but it pushes us more to think in a structured, focused way. And I think that helps to kind of keep us on the same page when it comes to a board of directors making decisions. Well, I think some of those rules too allow uh, individuals who might, you know, identify in the behavioral elements program as a water. They're the ones that, you know, want to let everybody have their turn and let people speak who want to speak. But it gives them the opportunity to talk without stepping on someone's toes because if everyone has to speak before someone can speak a second time that's their opportunity to speak up but not and not prevent someone else from from having their say um, so there's a lot of those processes that are in place within in in parliamentary procedure that give the voice to all the members on the boards um, i also struggle when a board member doesn't know their role or their job. Um, and in several cases, you know, you might have a board of directors that oversees um, employees of, of, of some sort. So I experienced that when I was on the board of education and 
everybody who worked in the district was an employee, uh, including the superintendent. We were the superintendent's boss. And when board members didn't know their role, they tend to try to um, get involved in, in decisions and steps that are not within their scope. And so Robert's rules, your bylaws, your policies help kind of bring them back into what their role is. And it also then as a board allowed me to, like as an example, I had a superintendent one time ask, uh, ask the board of, uh, uh, board of Education what color they wanted like the library to be painted. Like they had a, a variety of options and asked our opinion. And I said, if I had to give my opinion, I'd also be searching for a new superintendent. Like I'm paying you to make those decisions. Right. That's not my job. Well, That's committee work. And that, that ties back to what you said. I hate committee work at a board meeting. Well, and that's an interesting thing too, is right. Like when you see the board of directors, a lot of times people cower in fear. It's like the all powerful, they, eh, I mean, it depends on how that organization structured or how it's set up. Cause I've seen some different board of directors say uh, within a nonprofit space where the board's job was twofold, hire or fire an executive director and raise money. That was your two jobs. You didn't do any of the groundwork. You didn't make any of the decisions below that executive director line. And your job was to bring in money. So from that, I mean, your decision-making calculus is, is the executive director holding up the vision and the mission of the organization or not? If the answer is no, it's time to go for a search. If the answer is yes, then keep stay in your lane and right. don't get involved, you know? So... Now, one of the things that I've experienced, and this has been uh, sort of a huge pitfall, and, and we sort of referenced it almost at the beginning of this, but uh, a huge pitfall is I oftentimes feel like boards of directors are perpetually seeking consensus. And they feel like you have to have uh, a 7 0 vote, a 5 0 vote. Uh, you know, you don't want to have any naysayers or any dissenters on any decision. Before we get into why I fundamentally disagree with that, let's break that down. What do you think it is that maybe brings about, I've got a couple of ideas, but what do you think it is that makes us want to have just unanimous consent on different items inside of a board meeting? You know, I think it's they, they people want everyone on board so they have no opposition. They have no one that can complain about the decision or to some extent work against them in the, with the public or the members or whatever their organization is. Um, few of the groups that I've been on boards with that they wanted that they wanted a hundred percent stance on this. And I go, I don't know that that's needed, but once we leave the meeting, the entire board should be a hundred percent on board with this. Like that percent on board with the decision you don't have to be 100% on board with the vote. Yeah, I agree with that 100%. So even in times when I've been on the opposite end of winning a you know a policy move or anything else, this is also true when I was an elected official in the township or with the company or anything else. If I am outvoted, that, that doesn't even play into my mind like, okay, let's work to sabotage this. But I think so many people have that fear, that exact fear of, 
well, if, if, if we have somebody that's dissenting, they're not going to do their part. Or, and in some cases, maybe that fear is justified, but in some cases, maybe it's not. And I think that there's opportunities to have really good coaching sessions, feedback sessions, decision autopsies, a great tool that I love to use. Maybe I'll talk about that in a second. Uh, once you've made your decision to really make sure that everybody's on board or what they can do to contribute to the success of that decision. Because it makes no sense if you're a board of directors, all of you have the same mission and vision. So even if you're in disagreement of how to get there, that doesn't mean you would be sabotaging your efforts to get there when it's all said and done. But we, I think we do live in that fear. I, I think there's also, go ahead. Go I, ahead. Think I think it's a gotcha moment too, right? Yes. <laughs> I was just going to say that. Being wrong. And then that other person going, I told you so. I told yep, you. We, you didn't listen. I told yep, you. We do not want to be shown i told you i was there and and i have been on a board with somebody that was a we're going to use the behavioral archetype of a know-it-all when it comes to decisions well that was my decision be like yeah but your last six decisions were not really up there so you you're really kind of having some selective memory on how good your decision making is but that's beside the point yeah, I, I was going to say that maybe a personal fear of being on the wrong side, right? Like there's a huge power of if you're presented with multiple options and everybody is in agreement on option A, well, then if, you know, option A doesn't pan out, you can lean back on that of, well, we all agreed to it. So I don't know what happened. Um, you know, whereas if some people said option A, some people said B and some people C, and option C ended up being the best option, well, there's some level of personal stake that you have in there like, ooh, I voted for the wrong one, or I took that in the wrong direction. And our brain's really good at revisionist history and sort of making excuses for that. But that's where I think the tool of a decision autopsy comes in. And I think it's one of the most powerful things that any company or any organization can do. Are you familiar with that concept? I'm assuming it doesn't involve a dead body. It does not, thankfully. But, you know, essentially kind of this core concept, right? Like an autopsy, what is it? You go back, you review and find out exactly um, what had gone wrong or what had created the scenario in which the outcome that you have now uh, in, in, you know, forensic science, a dead body. Uh, in a number of other places, you might have, uh, you know, an autopsy, a financial autopsy, you know, what went wrong and what got us to this space that we're at now. Decisions are no different. And I think this is one of the most powerful tools is to really sit back, like after decisions, board of directors decisions, you know, when you're a month out, two months out, when you've gotten to see, is that decision working? Is it the right decision? Uh, something that I like to do is, is put a time frame on, all right, we're making this decision today. We're going to review this decision in 60 days or in 90 days. And we're going to write down today as much of the information as we know. Here's the factors that went into that decision as a board. Here's the information that we had available. Here are the thing, questions that we were asking. Here's all of the stuff, fresh, relevant, right now, in real time, and we're going to document all of that. 60 days from now, we're going to see if that decision's panning out. If that decision is not panning out, when we do our autopsy, we look back and say, what did we miss? 
What was information that would have been critical for us to understand now that we're 60 days? It's all hindsight, right? So at that point in time, we can more effectively make future decisions or look at if we have a similar decision, what other information should we be seeking? How else should we be thinking about it? If the decision worked and it's great, okay, let's look back and say, how can we replicate uh, whether we did research, whether we did an analysis, whether we did committee work, how can we replicate that for future board decisions to make sure that those decisions also work? I think it's just a wonderful tool to, to document and follow along to make sure that the board is always making the best possible decisions with future knowledge. And I, I think it is a great tool. And I often tell people to take that documentation, that report, that analysis, whatever it is that they did, and send a calendar invite out for that 60, 90, whatever time frame it is. Get it on people's calendars early. Get it locked in because there are so many times I've seen boards say, we're going to revisit this at 60, 30, 60, 90, six months, whatever the time frame is, and see how we did. And it falls off their radar. They forget about it. It gets uh, lost in the mix. It might... Uh, go, oh, we're going to add it to this agenda, and oh, we've got four minutes left on uh, today's meeting. Let's, let's kind of go and do that quick review. That is not the way it's supposed to work. You don't squeeze that review in into the last four minutes of a meeting. You don't, you know, keep canceling it or rescheduling it. you got to do that, and you've got to take the steps to make sure that that's a priority in understanding your decision-making process in assessing what is working and what is not working cannot be done in about four minutes. Well, and I, I love that you say that because when we think about, so one of my favorite books and one that we promote often. So in a moment though, Mark, I'm going to come back to you and I'm going to ask you, what is one of the worst experiences you've ever had with making decisions amongst a board of directors? Okay, so that's going to be my question for you. Uh, listeners, if you've served on a board of directors, we want to hear your perspective. What was your experience? Did you have a great experience, a negative experience? How is the decisions made? You can email us at podcast at coeuscreativegroup.com. Share your story with us. We'd love to hear. I'm sure that we're going to do more work on boards of directors as we move forward or even functional meetings. So please share with us again at podcast at coeuscreativegroup.com. But, uh, you know, one of the things that sort of just prompted when you were talking about that, that going back, that analyzing and really digging into it is exactly something that we explored in the masterclass for decision making at the Titan Skills Academy. And what that is, is system one and system two thinking. So one of my favorite all-time books is Thinking Fast and Thinking Slow by Daniel Kahneman, uh, where they evaluate you know, system one, which is the intuition-based decision-making. It's more impulsive, it's expert instinct, it's gut instinct, it's probably far more emotional laden. Then system two, which is the slower thinking. That's the more deliberative, the more analytical, more functional. And I've realized that there are very certain instances, and I probably lean more into system one uh, judgments than I would say, because if we think about it, there are 30, on average, and this is again, something that some of the psychological literature has suggested is that human beings make 35,000 decisions every single day. That's like 
a decision every two seconds from what you wear to what you eat to whether you turn left, whether you turn right, whether you, uh, you know, take two steps up the stairs rather than one step at a time. All of those are actual cognitive judgments or decisions. And when we have that many decisions, we do have to rely on things like intuition. We can't sit and analyze at the bottom of the steps, the pro and con list for whether we should step one foot at a time or whether we should step, you know, two stairs at a time or anything else. So, but it is still a decision. It's still an action that is related to our thoughts, feelings, and trying to accomplish something. And I think when we start to look at that system one and system two style thinking, that really explains a lot of my decision-making, probably even more so when I, earlier, younger Jay Johnson, early in my career where it was just like, yeah, let's do it. Yeah, whatever, let's just do it. It feels right, let's go. Um, rather than, okay, why don't we take a moment, think about this, do a little research, have some data backing. I, I would say that you and some of our other more earthy elements here at Coeus Creative Group have encouraged me to maybe go a little more towards the center, but um, where, where do you think you fall? Do you think you can do both intuitive and, uh, you know, system one, system two? Do you think you lean more primarily into one or the other? Is there certain litmuses that get you from one space to the other? You know, I think I'm more in system two. Uh, I'm not sure that that's going to be a surprise. Um, <laughs> but I would say based on experience, um, knowledge of scenarios, I can go into system one, um, but I almost think that it's really just system two operating at a faster speed. So it's interesting you say that because they really do talk about in, in thinking fast and slow is that when you develop an expertise, when you have that uh, prerequisite knowledge, that prerequisite experience, when you're truly a chess master is the example that they use. A chess master can walk up to a random game, look at the board and be like, white, uh, you know, white moves, checkmate in three moves and immediately start playing and win. Without analyzing, without looking from where it is, it's almost just like this sixth sense that they have in their decision-making or in their sort of cognitive thinking in that aspect. And if I walked up to it, I love chess, I like playing it, I couldn't look at it, I would have to sit there and analyze and spend more time. So I think when we have an expertise or even a perceived expertise, we're probably more inclined to make a decision based on intuition, which can be dangerous, uh, but it can also be good in some cases. I can give you a good example of that too. There's a fire chief and they were battling a small fire in the kitchen. This is an example from thinking fast and thinking slow. They're battling a small fire in the kitchen. And all of a sudden, and it's just a tiny fire, there's a handful of firefighters that are in there, they're hosing it, they've got it under control, and the fire chief immediately just reacts and says, get out, everybody out right now. And the, the firefighters were shocked, they didn't know what was going on, but he ushers them all out immediately, and immediately the floor had collapsed right behind them. And he said, you know, it, it wasn't a sixth sense, it wasn't like a premonition, but there was something, my ears were hotter than what that fire in the kitchen had allotted for. There was noises that I just perceived, even if it was in the background, that gave me this sense to make the decision very quickly to get us out of this space. Was that intuition? Or is that expert knowledge of 28 years of fighting fires and perceiving small things that other people might not 
ever perceive that the fire was actually, the larger fire was actually in the basement where it had started and it had just come up the walls into the kitchen. So that was where it was seen. Well, on that example, is it perceiving things that may not have been perceived or is it processing the items faster and connecting the dots faster? And I think that's where I was coming from is that they're there. I just connect them, piece them together much faster. So, I, But I still think I'm on the side two. Yeah. So I would say that I lean into side two when it comes to financial decisions. Uh, probably not my best area of expertise when it comes to something like behavior or when it comes to something that I'm much more familiar with. I think I can lean into system one, either because of confidence in my experience or knowledge or that you're right, that it just process, things just process a little quicker. Because sometimes I've been criticized for making a snap decision without thinking it through. And I'm like, no, I've actually thought of those different pathways. It just happened very quickly because I've been in this position before. There's still biases that fall into play at that, you know, whether it's a hot hand fallacy or attribution errors or any of those. But I do think that there's room for both. But I want to go back to my question. What was the worst decision or worst board experience when it comes to decision that maybe you've had uh, in your long career of serving on boards of directors? You know, I think the worst one was really just the board members took everything so personal and caused so much drama Mm. that I kind of felt like we were never making progress on issues. Um, people wanted everything their own way. There was no compromise. Um, it was just a miserable sort of experience and, and never really felt like we made progress on getting anything accomplished. I've, I think I've had that exact same decision in a different context. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell one of mine. It was when I was, uh, it was when I was a township trustee And the experience was we had to make the decisions on raises, okay? Now, the interesting thing is, is when you're an elected official, as you well know, um, you're not just uh, a beholder of the township resources or the city resources or anything else. You're also answering to 48,000 constituents in my case. And this was in 2013, 2014. So we were coming out of coming out of the recession and things were not all completely back to normal, especially in some of the small towns that were outside of the larger, you know, and, and Michigan was hit hard as, as we all know, because of the automotive industry. Well, when we start talking about raises and 48,000 constituents, not a single one of them has had a raise in quite some time, at least the last four to six years because of, uh, you know, because of the recession, that created some very, very hyper personal um, stakes in it. You know, like how can you be giving them a raise or you, this, that, and the other thing. And and the board was very, very divided on this question. From me, I took a step back and I'm looking at it strictly as a business decision. I looked at all of the other data from the communities around us. Uh, I saw that we were more than 20% lower than the next closest community that was of our average size. 
I look at the cost of replacing an employee if one left, especially some of our employees that had been there for 20 years with all of that knowledge, experience, leadership that have helped us through this time. I looked at some of those different uh, business-focused, logical, in my opinion, logical analyses in order to make the decision of, yes, we need to have some kind of aggressive catch-up and then a step program in order to give the directors a larger salary. On the opposite side of the table, I felt, was the emotional side of it. I knew that this wasn't going to be popular. I knew that this wasn't going to be something that was, uh, you know, that everybody was going to cheer and celebrate and so on and so forth. And I knew that people were going to draw their own experiences into it, even though this had nothing to do. You know, I can't, I can't affect whether or not uh, an automotive company is giving you a raise. That, what I do have control over is this space and this board. But what I ended up finding was no matter what position you took, it was very easy to paint the other side as either they don't understand, uh, they're not looking at it in the right way, they're not doing this. And this, this is true, I'm guilty of this too, because I'm looking at this and saying, they don't have any business sense, they don't understand business, they don't this. On the other side of that equation, they were looking and saying, this is just, you know, this isn't right. This isn't, it, it's not moral. It's not ethical, not, not an ethical question, but like, how can we do this when everyone around us is also suffering? You know, it's a deontological question to me. That's a frame that they could look at this in. My frame is also a frame that you could look at this in. And then you start to have this debate back and forth. Now, the people that were sitting there that were considering getting that, you know, we're making the decisions for getting a raise and they're hearing board members speak on their behalf, board members speak on against them. We're hearing constituents speak on their behalf, constituents speaking against them. And while all of this, a lot of this discussion was not fit to do executive session in because it wasn't negotiations there. It, this was just straight governance. Uh, it wasn't negotiations, so there was no reason to go into executive committee or exec, you know, executive uh, session and kind of keep it out of the public eye. That wouldn't have been transparent. All of this was done directly in front of everybody, which was rough. It was really rough to see the emotions of literally everyone in the space hurt in one way, shape, or another over a board decision. And that was that was probably one of the harder decisions. We ended up, that decision ended up going forward on a 4-2 uh, that to give the raises. And you know, even after that, I mean, there was some element of resentment of, you know, we just gave them this, or you just gave the farm away. There was resentment from directors that were just like, I'm not even worth it, you know, that, the, that they don't even want to, you know, take care of me, even though I've been doing this for underpay for the last 10 years and so on and so forth. So sometimes your decisions aren't going to be popular. You better be able to uh, explain them and to be able to rest back and be able to have a communication about it. Yeah, I mean, I can't even imagine being that employee or that director sitting there hearing it and, you know, working underpay and, and probably knowing that the environment at that time frame probably understaffed. Yeah. You know, probably oh, yeah, very much the so. role of multiple people. And yeah, I mean, I had a similar situation um, when I was on the school board, we, we voted to 
outsource a service to a private company. And we had um, a reputable company coming in proposing to, to provide that service. And, uh, you know, but the people that were our employees doing that role were, were in a union and were, were residents in the community, um, probably had children or had children that were in the district at some point, uh, very well known. And we're like, we're losing our jobs. You don't care, you know, but on the flip side, that company that was outsourcing was also hiring them into different roles, but it was changing their individual circumstances. And it was, uh, we had people picketing outside, I had people threatening to recall me um, <laughs> because I, I supported the change. It was a financial decision. We couldn't keep going on the path that, that we were currently on. And it wasn't a heartless standpoint from someone like me. I would have preferred to say the way we were. But at the end yeah. of the day, sometimes that financial decision your hands are tied and if, or you have to make a drastic change or cut somewhere else. And then someone else is going to just be as angry. Um, it was a tough decision, but the board and everyone, I think handled it well. So that's why it wasn't necessarily a, a bad experience. Um, it was just a tough decision that we made. Yeah. So we're nearing our end of the time here. I think we could probably talk about board decision-making for <laughs> quite some time. Yeah. Well, and I think it's such an interesting dynamic of behavior to see how people are. So maybe maybe we'll take a behavioral elements approach with this in a future episode and talk about maybe how the elements make those types of decisions, whether it's in a board context or anything else. Because I think that that would be a really interesting sort of rabbit hole that we could go down for a couple, uh, you know, for a couple. But uh, I hope that you enjoyed this week's show and thank you for tuning in to Behave Intelligently. If you enjoyed the episode, please rate, review and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you might be listening. Let us know what you think about the episode and email us your thoughts at podcast at coescreativegroup.com. If you want to learn more about Coes Creative Group, visit our website or connect with us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram. Tune in next time when we talk more about behaving intelligently.